You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Actually, I guess it's beginning to look a lot like Advent. You know the signs. Walmart has converted its garden center, where usually you would find flowers and herbs and vegetables and potting soil and garden implements into a magical land of Christmas trees, all beautifully lit and all available at reasonable prices. Another sign of the times, my wife and I are having our traditional argument about when we might put up our Christmas tree. She wants to sometime before Thanksgiving. If I had my way, it wouldn't go up until sundown on Christmas Eve and would stay up through the 12 days of Christmas. And as we see all of these hints of holiday popping up around us, our lectionary takes an apocalyptic turn. That's how we know that Advent is really coming soon. Today, in our epistle and gospel readings, we hear warnings about what the culmination of God's purposes will look like. And these will be our themes for the next few weeks as well. Next month, when we get into Advent, the apocalyptic themes will kick into high gear. We will be hearing about Christ's return and about judgment and about God claiming and renewing creation. Advent is the beginning of the church year, so we begin and end the church year with these warnings about what it's going to look like when Christ returns to claim his kingdom. Today, we hear the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and he tells them that the kingdom of heaven is like ten women waiting for a bridegroom. I'm going to pause for a second and talk about, I'm a little bit disturbed by hints of misogyny in this story. Just because it's the Bible doesn't mean that it wasn't written at a time and in a culture that is vastly different than ours. And I'm a little bit disturbed by this story about Uh, these women who are just waiting around for this man to show up and we've divided them into foolish and wise and the foolish ones are foolish because they're not ready for the guy to show up. But with those qualms said, we're going to set that aside and and assume that that's a discussion for a different uh, day and a different time. It seems that the tradition of the time was for the entire wedding party to process with the bride and the groom from the bride's parents' home to the groom's home. And again, there are hints of some misogyny here. She is leaving the property of her parents and she is becoming the property of her husband. And the the purpose of the wedding party is to uh, take her from one to the other. It's also interesting that in this story, we never hear about the bride. It's just the groom who's having the procession. And commentators I've read have uh, said that the assumption is because the groom is supposed to be Christ and the bridesmaids are supposed to be the church, we leave out the bride because that would be an inconvenient part of the story. The ten bridesmaids are waiting for this big procession to happen. They all take their lamps with them in anticipation that the party might be delayed until evening. 
but only five of them think to bring extra oil for their lamps. And sure enough, the groom is delayed and does not show up until late in the night, after midnight. When they wake up to meet him, the five foolish bridesmaids realize that they don't have any oil, so they miss out on the wedding banquet. I've always found this story to be vivid and memorable, mostly because of the hymn that's based on it and the Bach cantata that's based on that hymn. But what is it all about? What is the message we're supposed to be taking from it? Is it about watchfulness? The last line is about watch because you don't know the day or the hour, but honestly, that last line doesn't really fit the story at all. I don't see the story about looking for the return of Christ and not letting anything distract us from God's kingdom because, after all, everybody in the story, both wise and foolish, falls asleep. Nobody is watching for the groom. They're dozing. Is the story about patience? Maybe the key to understanding the story is knowing the context in which it was written. One thing about a seminary degree is it makes you pathologically unable not to look at context. More about that later on. Most scholars say that the Gospel of Matthew was probably written between the years 80 and 90, which is 50 or 60 years after Jesus' earthly ministry has concluded. Generations of Christians have grown up in the church without ever having had direct contact with Jesus or with his apostles. Maybe this story was written to assure, reassure people who wondered why the promise of Christ's return had not yet happened. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Why hasn't it happened yet? What are we supposed to do now? Maybe the message of the story is that we need to be patient and not despair because it will happen. We just don't know when. Certainly a message of patience and hope would speak to our contemporary world as well. How many of us spent the last week refreshing web pages frantically to see if vote counts had been updated in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Arizona? How many of us have been living with constant anxiety over the results of an election? Perhaps there is something to be said for a story that teaches us that God accomplishes God's purposes in God's own time in spite of our hurry and our worry. That may be a message I need to absorb and meditate on, but I don't know that even that is the central point of this story. The foolish bridesmaids are not foolish because they despair or because they give up waiting and they walk away. They don't. When the groom arrives, they are right there, along with the wise bridesmaids. So what's the difference in the story between the wise and the foolish ones? I think that if we review the story, we will note that the main thing that separates them is their level of preparedness. The wise bridesmaids, bridesmaids are prepared for whatever might happen. They have extra oil in case something happens that they have not considered. The foolish ones do not. They have a plan, but they do not have a backup plan. In 2011, Tracy and I were newly married and were living in Anderson, Missouri, where I was the pastor of the United Methodist Church. We were living in the parsonage there. And we had in January and February a series of uh, horrific winter storms that came through. You may remember those. They just kind of blanketed all of southern Missouri in snow. 
And we knew it was coming and we knew this was going to be something bigger than we'd ever seen before. And so we did what you do when a winter storm is coming. We went out to the store and we bought all the food we could find knowing that we might not be able to, to get out. And actually, uh, when I was in fourth grade, we had, my family experienced a rather devastating uh, uh, two weeks of being snowed in. And it was devastating not because we ran out of food, but because we ran out of interesting food. We'd slaughtered hogs that fall, and we had all sorts of potatoes and canned green beans and stuff like that. And for two weeks, we subsisted on pork and potatoes and canned green beans. We were out of our minds by the end of those two weeks. So I, I learned that lesson, and I said, we need to get fun stuff. We need to get frozen pizzas. We need to get candy bars. We need to get a diversity of things and stock the freezer so that we not only have nourishment, but we don't go insane from nothing ever changing from it being the same thing day to day to day. And uh, we went to the store one afternoon and then the next morning overnight, the snow hit the next morning we got up and there was a foot of snow on the ground. And I went into the kitchen to get something to eat. And it suddenly dawned on me that I had not, I had thought to bought to buy food, but I had not thought to buy food that did not require cooking or refrigeration. Thank goodness we never lost power. I had a plan, but I did not think through all the contingencies of that plan. The wise bridesmaids have something like this covered. The foolish ones do not. They assume that everything is going to work out as planned. They have not prepared for all contingencies. Something about that really appeals to my anxious mind. I like to have plans and backup plans for everything I do. For instance, sometimes I lose my car keys. And as I'm looking for my car keys, I'm creating backup plans for what if I can't find these? What if I drop these on my walk with the dogs and they're in the park and I'll never see them again? I'm thinking about what would, it, what would it cost to make replacement keys? How would I get my car to the dealership to get replacement keys? And I have plans A, B, C, D, E, F, G in my head going on. I can't imagine that in telling this parable, Jesus is trying, however, to justify me being a basket case. There has to be a deeper spiritual meaning, right? Again, Maybe we find meaning when we look at the context. What's going on around this story? As I said earlier, the story of the ten bridesmaids happens in the middle of a set of apocalyptic stories. Now, when we think of the word apocalypse, we think that means death and destruction and the end of life as we know it. But really, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means something taken out of hiding, something that was hidden and is not anymore. It's a revelation something that we would not know about without hearing it proclaimed here, something we can't figure out on our own. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible tends to be about how life may be difficult now, but at some point God will intervene to set everything right. This happens in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, most famously in the book of Revelation, also in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. God will vindicate the suffering and the oppressed, God will raise up those who are low and bring down those who are high. God will push aside the oppressors. In the Gospels, the apocalyptic scenes are usually Jesus talking about how the world is going to get bad, but at some point he is going to return to put it right again. 
Most of these stories were written in the wake of the Romans destroying Jerusalem and the temple, which was the center of Jewish worship. So Matthew's community was certainly looking for a moment when God might intervene to validate their identity and to ease their suffering. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells the disciples that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. One stone will not be laid upon another and that there will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and persecutions. In other words, things are going to get really, really bad. He says that there will be false leaders out there who try to offer false hope. He says false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. <coughs> then if we read on in chapter 25, after our lectionary gospel for today, we see the parable of the talents. A man is going on a trip and he gives some of his money to his slaves for safekeeping. Two of the servants invest the money and make more money for their master. One of them digs a hole in the ground and buries the money there so he won't lose it. When the master comes back, he praises the two who invested his money, but he condemns the one who did nothing with it. Jesus is telegraphing a message to us with the juxtaposition of these stories. We're getting hints of a meaning. Don't let false leaders or false narratives lead you astray. Be prepared for anything that could happen. Use what God has given you to advance the kingdom of heaven. Don't squander that. It's as if Jesus is dancing around something. He's giving us these little sort of practical things, but he's dancing around a bigger meaning. He's teasing us along, hinting that something big is about to drop. And then the big item drops. Right at the very end of Matthew chapter 25. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says that when he comes to earth again in all his glory, he will gather up all people and separate them from one another, from each other as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. <laughs> to the sheep, he says, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And to the goats, he says, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The work of the kingdom is caring for the least, the poorest, the most vulnerable of our brothers and sisters, as if they were Christ. Now the whole thing starts to make sense. 
Jesus is telling us not to fall for someone who says that Christ is out there in the wilderness and that you should go out and see him. Christ is right here in the poorest of the poor and the weakest of the weak. Be prepared for all contingencies means be prepared to see Christ at any time and and in any person. You don't know where he's going to show up. It could be in your neighbor. It could be in a stranger. Charles Wesley, the great Anglican priest and hymn writer, had a conversion experience in 1738. (coughs) It was just days before his brother John's more famous Aldersgate experience. John and Charles Wesley had been uh, ordained priests and then went to Georgia to where they had this idea they were going to convert Native American tribes and it it worked out horribly uh, and they had to leave town um, after being threatened to be locked up by the lieutenant governor of the province. So they came back to England in shame and Charles fell ill. He was in sick and in bed in May of 1738, so sick that he was delirious and wondering if he was going to die. He said that he heard a female voice calling to him to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And in his feverish state, he decided that this must actually have been the voice of Jesus Christ that he heard calling him to deeper discipleship. When he heard, when he told the people in his house what had happened, they naturally assumed that he was out of his mind. Then one of the women of the household admitted that she had been in Wesley's sick room at the time that he'd heard the voice and received the vision. So everybody knew exactly what had happened. He'd heard her talking to him, and because he was feverish, he was so sick, he was delirious, he'd interpreted her voice as being the voice of Christ. Wesley was at first sorely disappointed at learning that the voice he heard was that of an ordinary person and not the Messiah. But then he started wondering, what if it was anyway? What if she was Christ for me in that moment? This thought was the spark that drove his conversion experience. What if this ordinary person here with me right now is Christ in disguise? I think it's important to note what happens to the five foolish bridesmaids in this story. There is no condemnation. There is no punishment. There's no scolding. Nothing happens to them because they're not ready to meet Christ. They aren't led away into eternal damnation. They aren't cast out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequence of them not being ready to see and meet Christ whenever he appears is simply that they miss out. They have to go buy some more oil, and while they're gone, the wedding banquet happens, and they miss it. To me, this illustrates just how wonderful it is when we are able to see where Christ is at work in our world and with whom Christ is at work in our world. It is so wonderful that simply missing out on it is heartbreaking. I mentioned earlier the wonderful 16th century Lutheran hymn that's based on this reading, Wacket auf ruft uns die Stimme, Uh, and there's a a wonderful Bach cantata, probably the greatest of Bach's cantatas that he based on this hymn. If you haven't ever heard it, go find it um, on YouTube this afternoon. 
I'm going to read part of this from a translation that I love because it's by Carl P. Daw Jr., who is an Episcopal, an Episcopal priest and was one of my professors at Boston University. The second stanza is, Zion hears the watchman singing, her heart with joyful hope is springing. She wakes and hurries through the night. Forth he comes, her bridegroom glorious, in strength of grace, in truth victorious. Her star is risen, her light grows bright. Now comes most worthy Lord, God's Son, incarnate word. Alleluia. We follow all and heed your call to come into the banquet hall. It's not something to be missed. If we live as though the poorest, weakest, sickest, smallest of our neighbors is Christ for us, then what is our reward? Our reward is every day getting to see Christ face to face and every day getting to join the celebration that he hosts. Amen. Amen.